All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? This is Mark Marin. This is WTF. Welcome to the show. Got a packed show today. Uh, Britt Daniel from the band Spoon is going to be here in the latter part of the show. I can say that because we've got a, another meaty guest on the show as well. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the amazing John Ronson has written a book uh, about shame. So you've been publicly shamed. It's out now. We talked a bit about this book on episode 473. Uh, he was in the middle of writing the book. Now, I, I think some of you by now have probably realized that if I've had a guest on before who I enjoy and like, which is most of my guests, if they've got something that they uh, you know want to get out in the world, they, they want a little help or they want to talk about it some more, I'll have them on for what we call shorties. That's what we call them behind your back. I call him a shorty interview. Though John and I did get into a bit. We got into it a bit. It's a, it's, it's a heavy topic. The public shame business. Shame in general weighs heavy on all of us. Uh, well, many of us. Uh, some know it better than others. Uh, some nourish it for no reason at all. If you're out there nourishing shame without any purpose, uh, you should probably check yourself. It might be where you're most comfortable. And that's what keeps religions in business and also psychiatrists and also the general capitalist model remains in business because of persistent, chronic, and nourished shame. You need relief from that shit? Get something in you. Go buy something. Go talk to Jesus. Go get some pills. Do you really need it? Do you real? Is the shame based in anything? Shame is not guilt. It's something deeper. It's something deeper. It's a it's a point of view on who you are. It's not related to uh, to action necessarily. And sometimes it's very old and very young and uh, uh, not so uh, definable as to where it comes from. But uh, it's uh, it's paralyzing. Not like cancer is paralyzing, but it's sort of a soul cancer. Rambling on, tonight I'll be in Madison, Wisconsin. Might be a few tickets left for that. Uh, on Friday, April 17th, the Carnegie of Homestead Music Hall in Pittsburgh. I think there's a few tickets left for that. Saturday, April 18th, the Royal Oak Music Theater in Royal Oak, Michigan, outside of Detroit there. Uh, might be a few for that. Don't know. Toronto on Sunday, April 19th. First show is sold out. Second show, maybe a few tickets at the Bluma Appel Theater. You can go to WTFPod.com and... Uh, and get uh, links to these things. That's what's happening this weekend. The next weekend we're doing Texas. So that's the story. If you want to go see me, I think there's still some opportunity. Not a lot of tickets, you know, but there are some. So if you're in any of those places and you're just hearing about this shit, go do it. So last night I do this thing called Baked Comedy at the Baked Potato, which is this classic little uh, jazz rock, uh, you know, uh, music bar hole, this box of a room that's magic. It's a magic room. I've been there before. I've talked to you about this before. The show Baked is basically, it's a monthly show where comics can tell a story and also sing or play an instrument or whatever with a band that Brendan Small from Metalocalypse fame that he's put together. And uh, they're amazing musicians. They're just fucking awesome. I put, you know who was in the, the band last night? Uh, Mike Keneally. Do you know who Mike Keneally is? He's a fucking wizard. He's one of them genius wizards of the guitar. Played with Zappa towards the end. Steve Vai. Uh, other guys at Noodle. 
Joe Travers on drums, who's a, a genius. Pete Griffin on bass, bass genius. Mike Keneally on keyboards and guitar. Mike Keneally, Mike Ke- the wizard, the wizard. And I told the story about talking to Mick and Keith and, and Dean Del Rey uh, sang, and I played, and the fellas jammed. And you know, they, and these, these wizards, you know, they come up to me, and they're like, That's, you sounded great. Mike Keneally, fucking, you know, high-level, uh, initiated guitar wizard, um, you know, tells me I did great. And I, and I accept it, and I felt like I did great. But then I realized, like, you know, it's interesting, because this happened once before, many years ago. You know, I'm an amateur guitar player, but I play seriously. And, and I, I don't grow so much, you know, skip my skill set or, or yeah, I'm not practicing to become a, 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 a noodle wizard, but I, you know, I do play to sort of, you know, get my chops in order and express my feelings on the instrument. And then when somebody who is a, a guitar wizard says, you, you know, you sounded great. Part of me is like, I know he's not condescending, but see the thing that I have that those guys will never have again is the limitations, the limitation of what I know is that I'm an energetic, you know, I have a lot of emotion, but I'm severely limited on the instrument, you know, in, in relation to somebody who's a wizard. So I've got to really work within those limits to push through. And if you do that, if you have limitations in whatever you do, but you, you, you are able to push everything you need to push through those limitations, you can express yourself thoroughly and simply and, and concisely in a way that, wizards will never have again because wizards can do anything they can almost do it you know second nature they can hear something and recreate it and so the one thing that's gone forever is amateur passion i got feels and i gotta get some out now in the rawest form possible why hide the feels behind the noodle (laughs) that's my that's my take on guitar (laughs) <laughs> oh, don't laugh at yourself. I love talking to John Ronson. I do want to preface this that he brought his son over, who's a fan of the show, and and just a, a and the kid hadn't slept in about a day because they were traveling, and uh, he was all raw and cool and fun, and he was just sitting there, kind of laughing to himself when me and his dad were talking. It was very adorable. So that that was what was happening. So here I'm going to talk a bit to John Ronson about his new book. So you've been publicly shamed. What, what happened to you? Okay, so this is when I was first starting out in journalism. And I was working for this magazine that just closed down called Loaded. And they phoned me up and they said that um, you can be flown on Concord to Prince's house uh, in Minneapolis. Do you want to do it? Yeah. So I said, yes, please. Okay. So I turned up at the airport um, and I said, hi, I'm here to fly on Concord. <laughs> and the woman said, are you the courier? And I said, no, I'm a passenger. And she turned to the woman next to her and said, find out if he's the courier. So that was like a bad start. Yeah. So then I What got, does that mean? Like, I don't know. Like, I didn't look like a passenger. I must be delivering something. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So, and even when I said I was a passenger, she was still convinced yeah. I was delivering something. Uh-huh. 
So then I got on the plane and I was seated next to Keith Richards. Come on. In first class? Well, it's all first class on Concord. It's oh. all one class. Is it still around? No more, right? No, no. That one crashed. And, and that um, was the end of it. Yeah. And in fact, the story I'm about to tell will give an insight into why Concord is no longer operational. Okay. The story so it's sadly. you and Keith. Me and Keith at the back in smoking. Yeah. This is when I still smoked. Uh, so I thought, oh, shit, I'm going to have to like spend the next you know, three and a half hours looking straight ahead and not acknowledging the fact that I'm sitting next to Keith Richards. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and, Impossible. Uh, right. Well, I, I swear to God, within a minute, he's, he pokes me in my ribs. I yeah. can't remember like the first thing he said to me, but within, within about 10 seconds, he said to me, uh, I've done everything, man. <laughs> and, uh, so we're talking. Yeah. And then Concord takes off. And it reaches like Mac two, yeah, and everybody like applauds because that's when you you beat. You hear it? Do you hear the sonic boom? Yeah, yeah. And it says at the front Mac two, yeah, and like there's applause, and um, and then it started to slow down. And like Concord, like, I mean, I hadn't been on Concord before, but I assumed that once it like reaches Mac two, it doesn't just immediately slow down, right? But it did, yeah. And the captain came on the tannoy and went. You may have noticed that we have slow hydraulic like that. Yeah. Like his, his, the tannoy wasn't working. Yeah. So like, you know, Keith Richards seems fine. But Uh, then the guy in front of me, who was like the head of a radio station, uh Capital Radio, turned around and said, uh, apparently the last time this happened, uh, they gave everybody free uh, vouchers for Marks and Spencers, which is like a kind of um, food store in England. Yeah. And then the woman on the next thing. And by now, like, the plane's juddering. It's, like, juddering alarmingly. Really? Yeah. And, and like, the woman next was going, apparently, we get vouchers. We get free vouchers. Like, £500 vouchers. And I'm thinking, fuck. And, uh, <laughs> like, this, we're going down. Yeah. You're not I, thinking about vouchers. Yeah. And I swear, like, this story I'm telling you, I'm not, I'm, this is no exaggeration. So then the captain, like, tries to come on the tannoy again. Goes, I'm sorry, apparently the tannoy is yeah. hydraulic fuel. <laughs> And uh, so then the captain comes out of the cockpit and starts addressing people like um, four by four. And Keith Richards goes, um, so he's like way down the front of the yeah. plane. And Keith Richards goes, uh, I don't I don't care about this, but uh, I'll tell you who is going to be pissed off. I said, who? He said, Mick. <laughs> he's down the front. <laughs> and so Mick Jackalak turns and waves at Keith. <laughs> Um, Come on! I swear! I swear! You don't. Uh, and then, uh, and obviously, I'm thinking like, "Fuck! If this plane goes down, like for eternity, it's going to be yeah. like Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Liam Neeson, and 97 others." Yeah, you're not. You didn't even make top billing at no, all. No, fucking Liam Neeson was on the plane. Yeah, Liam Neeson too. Wow. Yeah. So then the captain, like, finally, he's like, like addressing people four by four, and he reaches us. And like he decides to like, I guess he has to look at somebody. So he looks at me. Yeah. And he says, "You may have noticed that the plane has like slowed down dramatically. It's because we've lost our hydraulic fuel. There's a leak, and we've lost our hydraulic fuel. We're going to turn back to to London. We may or may not make it. I swear. Um, but just enjoy, you know, the food. And at this point, the guy in front of me turns around and goes, "The vouchers." <laughs> <laughs> Mention the vouchers. <laughs> we, he said we may or may not make it. We may look. This is my memory of it. We may or may not make it. That's my memory. And Keith just sat there. Yeah. So I, I said to Keith, um, 
you know, you've said you've done everything. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he said, well, I've never flown over Greenland twice in one day. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my, yeah. Uh, that's that's he's story. clever, man. He's quick. I know, I know. I noticed that too, just talking to him for 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. What was They're he... both very witty, yeah. So, Hey, so thank you for having me back, Mark. Well, I mean, we had talked about this book when you were on the show before, and I'm happy you're in Los Angeles. This is the uh, So You've Been Publicly Shamed book. Yeah. And this is a book about shame in general, in a way. Yeah. Last time I came on the show, yeah. I was like, I was still writing it, and I hadn't told anybody yeah. uh, like what I was doing. And then you said, so what are you working on? And I said, I'm writing a book about public shame, and I immediately regretted saying it to you because you know loose lips yeah. sink ships and right. I thought you know fuck I'm, I don't even know where it's going yet and oh so you didn't think you'd finish it perhaps maybe not or maybe one of your bastard listeners would steal the idea and get the <laughs> oh get, yeah get, steal the idea that you didn't explain at all yeah <laughs> right so I thought so I was skirting around <laughs> yeah, it so I yeah. thought maybe you know it'd be nice now that the book's out well now it's here and now it's in America it took a little yeah. while to get it here because people have already gotten it in the UK right mm-hmm. and uh, I read the I read the excerpted piece in the New Yorker about the woman who what what was her job? What uh, did she Justine Sacco, she was a PR woman. Yeah. Uh she's like she's kind of like Does she the thread? No, but it's a really remarkable and difficult story, Justine. Yeah. And and all the more reason I, I love it. It's so difficult. It makes people uncomfortable. And for instance, I read something in the Washington Post that said like John Ronson's right to be writing a book about how we've gone like shaming crazy. Yeah. But he shouldn't have like made Justine Sacco a hero. She's the wrong person. And that obviously made me like even more happy that I was making her a hero because she's un- she's difficult and she makes people feel uncomfortable. Right. Um so well I so her story is that she she's like a hundred she's got a 170 Twitter followers. Right. PR woman. Right. I mean, we went crazy. Twitter went like crazy that night. It was like Lord of the Flies. So basically, she's tweeting. She's at Heathrow. She's about to go to Cape Town. And she tweets, going to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white. Right. So she's got no replies. Um, <laughs> and Easily misunderstood joke. Yeah, it's definitely... <laughs> and easy to misunderstand you know one stripped of its nuance um what she was trying to do i mean you know what she was trying to do right in that joke right she, what what are, what are she you was trying to be like randy newman or south park right, she was trying right. to like you know mock right white privilege in a self-reflexive right, way by right. doing an extreme without without really realizing that that text or twitter has no there's no way to define one's voice if it floats there without the identification of the individual behind it right but she never thought about any of that because she never got any reply she only had 170 twitter followers so yeah so like you know obviously she felt that sad feeling that we all feel when the internet oh no one liked it yeah no one likes me <laughs> no one's congratulated now not only does no one like you but they're going to come raining terror upon you well she had no idea you know because she just she just like got on the plane you know got no replies felt sad no one congratulated her for being funny <laughs> turned off the phone yeah. like you know stretched fell yeah. asleep woke up yeah. 10 hours later turned on her phone and straight away there's a text from somebody she hasn't spoken to since high school that said i am so sorry to see what's happening <laughs> that was what she woke up that's what yeah, she yeah. landed to that's what she landed to and then another text from her best friend you need to phone me now you are the worldwide number one trending topic on twitter and you know it she realized what had happened but i mean it was unbelievable so it starts with like the humanitarians like in the light of this 
of this terrible tweet, I am donating to aid to Africa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So then it's like, it gets a little bit darker. Yeah. Like, let's get this cunt fired. Yeah. Everybody go report this cunt. Yeah. Um, then it gets darker still. Like, somebody HIV positive should rape this bitch and then we'll find out if her skin colour protects her from AIDS. Which, by the way, nobody went after that person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was, that's pretty gnarly. Yeah, we yeah. Can only, it's like we can only handle destroying one person a night. Yeah. So And then her employers tweeted, um, this is an outrageous, insulting comment. Um, employee currently unreachable on an international flight. And that's when things went crazy because suddenly like 100,000 people or more, millions of people, everybody was on Twitter that night. This tweet overwhelmed their timeline. I mean, were you on Twitter that night? I don't remember it. Okay. Well, it certainly overwhelmed my timeline. And I thought like everybody else thought that night, which is, you know, wow, somebody's fucked. And I got like excited. Yeah. And then I thought, I'm not sure that was a racist tweet. I'm yeah. not sure that that was what was intended there. But anybody who said that, that night was like well you're just a privileged fucker too so shut yeah, up right so so you know everyone was scared couldn't so. chime in really no. no well everyone was scared it's yeah. like we we were and you don't have the bandwidth to you don't have the space to to sort of present that yeah mm. to, to there's no time uh some people have experimented with long form narrative tweets you know Patton's been doing a bit of that and and mm. he, you know and, and and I've done it in my past but to actually create a defense in the middle of of a shitstorm yeah on twitter it's it's not it, it's not uh, practical because everything you say at that point is just more evidence for the prosecution sure and it'll get divided in 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 within people's timelines with other stuff and people have to put it together and if you don't have a real voice that anyone necessarily cares about you you're just going to be this fragmented uh, narrative in a tr- in a timeline. Yeah, and then even even if um, even if like Justine did have a good defense, she was asleep and oblivious. And oh my god, it's just a nightmare. I mean, yeah. the, the mild shaming that I've gotten on Twitter, uh, they, I can only imagine in exponentially. Uh, just devastating. Well, you know what happened next. I mean, so after that, I, mean, I haven't even told you the worst of it yet. So. As soon as, like, we found out that she was, like, oblivious to her destruction, that became hilarious to us. That became, like, a great narrative arc. So it's like, oh, my God, imagine what Justin Sack is going to be like when her, when the plane lands yeah. and she turns on her phone. And then a hashtag started to trend worldwide. Hashtag, has Justine landed yet? Uh-huh. And people were tweeting, oh, I so want to go home, but everybody in this bar is so into hashtag, has Justine landed yet? But, you know, people were, like, gathered around smartphones. It was like the Truman Show. It was like the world's worst surprise party ever. But did she even get on Twitter when she landed? Well, finally when she landed. So everyone was like, um, Justin Sacco lands in like, because somebody, somebody linked to a flight tracker website so everybody could watch in real time <laughs> like, as she was getting closer. <laughs> like, what was she going to do when she landed? Oh, shit. Uh, you know what? This isn't like crazy trolls. Everybody wants to regulate against trolls. Right. This wasn't trolls. This, right. was, this was us. This was nice people like us. Sure. And our massive desire to be seen to be empathetic uh, towards people um, dying of AIDS in Africa, we created this incredibly unempathetic. Um, this monster. Was, there, was, there, was the press already showing pictures of her places? Well, somebody, um, somebody said, come on Twitter. Is anybody going to go to Cape Town Airport to tweet her arrival? I want pictures. So somebody went to the airport to tweet her arrival and took pictures of her. And like, if you want to know what it looks like, 
to have just found out that hundreds of thousands of people have destroyed you. You can see it. She's just there at baggage claim, wearing dark glasses, looking utterly crushed and terrified. And you talk to her. Yeah. Like, so I was on this journey because I was really interested in the people being destroyed by us because I would notice that, um, you know, I, I was joining in on these things all the time. And then, you know, if you'd asked me back then, oh, could that person you just destroyed, I mean, A, I probably wouldn't remember who they were or what it was that they did. But then if I did remember, I think, oh, I'm sure they're fine. So I wanted to meet people to find out. And actually... Her life was destroyed. Our victims. Like, and I'm talking about, you know... Don't, dis- don't rope me into your horrible <laughs> behavior, John Ronson. <laughs> You've done it a bit. Mark. I don't know if I have done it a bit. Have I jumped on board? Yes. Okay. But I'm not, I think you've done it a bit. We've all done it a bit. But also, don't you think we are doing to people like Justin Sacco the thing that really we're most terrified might happen to us? Sure. Yeah. And that's weird. I mean, I was really interested in that. Like, why? Like, we all walk around in life, like, permanently terrified of being shamed. Like, we've all got something bubbling away within us that we're terrified would just destroy our reputation. Yeah, but, but that also implies to me, and I, and I was reading a little bit in, that, in the book about that group, but see, the fact that you say that we all walk around with these secrets yeah. implies that we are already ashamed. Mm. So, you know, I, and I think that's a right observation that most people are walking around in some, some, uh, uh, some intensity of shame, personal shame, and the fear of being found out would be to shine a light on this horrible thing in themselves. Uh, but I think the shame already exists. Yeah, oh God, the shame does exist. Um, that group you, you mentioned, this is a group which tries to eradicate... Well, what happened to her, first okay, of all? Okay, so Justine, okay, so finally she landed, they took her photograph. I mean, obviously she lost her job straight away, but, you know, after everybody else had just forgotten about it, because it would been gone um, within a few days. By the way, in November 2013, she was Googled 40 times. Um, between December the 20th and the end of December, she was Googled 1,220,000 times. And um, she was more like if you typed Justin into Google that night, you'd get Justine Sacco before you got Justin Bieber. She was being searched for more often than Justin Bieber. So now it's it's resided. Yeah. And then she she vanished and, and everybody just moved on. And in fact, if you ask him, I asked one of the guys who was like the lead shamer, like this guy, Sam Biddle, who works for like Valleywag and Gorka. And, and uh, he was the person who first alerted, um, you know, a large number of people to the tweet. So one of Justine's 170 Twitter followers sent it to him and he retweeted it to his 15,000 right. followers. And I asked him how it felt and he said uh, it, it felt delicious. And then the conversation got on to how he thought she was now. And he said, I'm sure she's fine. And that's because we want to... That's That kind of glibness is exactly what all of us feel when we're in the midst of shaming somebody. We we want to destroy somebody, but we don't want to feel bad about it. I don't know if I exactly feel that. I understand what you're saying, but I you know, I, I, I always wonder. Mm-hmm. Do you, you know what I mean? I, oh, I, like, how are they now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I certainly started to wonder that. So I went on this kind of journey yeah. around America, meeting our victims, meeting the people who had been destroyed by us. Like, all my life, like, with the minister at Goats and the psychopath test, like, the crazy people who were doing the destroying were people a long way over there. Yeah. Justin Sacco, she was destroyed by us. So I went on this journey, like, trying to get into the, the homes of the people who had been destroyed, meeting them in restaurants. They looked like these kind of, you know... So I met Justine in a restaurant three weeks later, and she was wearing the business clothes of her former life. Um, it was like, like, 
the living dead it was like a kind of zombie film where they're wandering like these spectral figures really? wandering the earth yeah she was crushed she said that she cried out her body weight in the first 24 hours and she'd wake up in the middle of the night forgetting who she was i mean this is like ptsd yeah um you know she forgot she she was scared that she was going to lose herself um so she lost her job and she wasn't fine and she wasn't fine for a year um, the only person who offered her a job was the um, was the owner of a yachting company in Florida who said, I'm completely on your side. And she thought, I don't know anything about yachts. So yeah. it's this guy. Is he like yeah. somebody who thinks white people can't get AIDS? Yeah. So... Um, was he? Uh, she turned him down. Mm. She ended up going to Addis Ababa uh, to, work, uh, to, work with, to work with the charity... Um, helping uh, reduce maternal mortality rates in Ethiopia, um, which she kind of loved, partly because I think there was no internet there. Yeah. And um, and I think she kind of daydreamed about maybe this is my new life. But of course, that wasn't a new life because uh, she was a kind of New York City person. So she came back uh, to a town that's, where things still weren't OK for her. She, she couldn't like date because you Google everybody that you date. And she was the AIDS tweet woman. And um, finally, so I wrote about it. So I met her a couple of times. Yeah. Since my piece came out and people were like saying to her, like my book, um, oh my God, you know, look at what we did to you. Actually, that's not true. Nobody said that to her. People said, oh my God, look at what those people did to you. Sure. Like they weren't the fuckers yeah, who were doing yeah. it in the first not place. Not me. I wasn't even home that night. <laughs> right. Um, but of course, you know, there's nothing more traumatizing as a human being. You know, when you meet these people like I did. And what well, I love. Who were the other people that you met? Oh, just... other people. A woman called Lindsay Stone. And what did she do? She made a similar joke where. On Twitter? On, no, on Facebook. Where she had, um, she had this. She worked with adults with learning difficulties, and she had this running joke where she would pose in front of a sign and do the opposite. So she'd loiter in front of a no loitering right. sign. Right. Um, so she takes the people in her care to Arlington yeah. National Cemetery, sees the sign that says "Keep off the grass," thinks, "Oh, well, I stand on the grass," and thinks, "No, no, that'll get me into trouble." Then she sees a sign that says "Silence and respect." Inspiration strikes. She she crouches in front of the sign pretending to shout and flip the finger so that goes around the world um you know die cunt cut out our uterus let's rape this bitch uh you know disrespecting the military she doesn't leave her home for a year and a half reads every tweet every tweet snakes its way into her you know believes everything that people are saying about her even though she knows it's just a joke about a sign feels completely worthless is totally ill-equipped and what happened to her well after after i mean now like justine my book my book has kind of brought them back in it's like the the opposite to there's nothing more traumatizing than being like cast out and And what happened who's some other people uh there's a guy called um well there's a there's two people called hank and adria this is this is a really dark story so hank um hank is in the audience of a tech conference in santa clara and he's whispering some stupid beavis and butthead joke to the guy next to him uh something about big dongles yeah you can imagine big, big dongles yeah uh, he half notices the woman in front take a photograph. He thinks she's taking a photograph of the crowd. So he leans forward, trying not to mess up her shot. Uh, ten minutes later, a conference organiser comes up and says, um, 
can you come with me? So they're taken into a quiet room and told there's been a complaint about sexual comments. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And he, you know, he knew exactly what they meant. And he apologised. And they said, that, oh, that's fine. And that was it. So they left the conference on their way to the airport. They're kind of nerdy. And so they, the whole confrontation thing was like, you know, anxiety inducing yeah. to them. On the way to the airport, they decide to, they, they said, they think, how did the woman in front communicate her complaint to the conference organisers? And the the nightmare was that it was a, it was in the form of a public tweet, so they had a look, and there was a photograph of the two of them. She'd taken a photograph of them, and wrote "not cool jokes about big dongles" right behind me. So the next day, he was called into his office and fired. Hank is like heartbroken. He's been fired. He posts a message on this website called Hacker News saying, you know, I'm really sorry that I, I upset this woman, and you know, I take responsibility for that, but she turned around and took my photograph and sealed my fate and I've got three kids and getting fired was terrifying so every like men's right blogger and troll just turned on her and it's like a man's out of a job because of some stupid comment was overheard by a woman with more power than sense let's crucify this cunt right cut out her uterus yeah so to this day, like 18 months, two years later, she still hasn't got another job. She had to leave home. She, she like, got fired. She got fired because um, some people from 4chan did a DDoS attack on, on her company's website, which is like some kind of malicious program. Hacker? Yeah. Yeah, where the, where, where the, the website gets overwhelmed right. and can't function. So she got fired from her job. So it's like carnage. In that story, everybody thought they were punching up, right? Everybody thought they were like Rosa Parks fighting the good fight. But in fact, what happened... So she thinks that the guys are kind of em- emblematic of a male-dominated tech industry. So that's why she does it. And then all these men are like, you know, this is feminism out of control, so let's let's kill this cunt. Right. Everybody fucking thinks they're punching up, and it's just carnage. But also, the, the, the other thing is, is like, you know, you know, William Burroughs once talked about a, a, a nation of rats, and that the idea that Big Brother is watching us is, is ridiculous because he doesn't have to. That, like, you know, that if you have to walk through life nervous yeah. that if you make an, a joke that may be you know just appropriate to the conversation you're having but they're culturally inappropriate it's your business but there's absolutely no privacy anymore in any context yeah that if there's somebody around with a phone it's it's happened to me like you know i'm just sitting there talking to somebody and i'll see a tweet like marin's right next to me at the thing you know and i'm like why why yeah yeah i had the other day actually in england i was like somebody came up to me and said so what was it like going to stanley kubrick's house and i started telling him the story and I looked down at his hand and he was recording it. He was taping it all with his with his phone. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you about the surveillance thing. You know, everyone's worried about the NSA spying on us. Yeah. It's not the NSA that's going to get next us. To you. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get us. Yeah, exactly. We are going to get sure, us. Sure, we're volunteering yeah. the information. This is why I really wanted to write this book because yeah. I wanted people to feel. Like, my book makes people panic when they read it. Yeah. And I want that because I wanted people to feel what it feels like to be destroyed by us. This is what it feels like because we don't want to think about what it feels like. So that's why, you know, your heart pounds, I think, when you read my book for that reason. But my heart pounds every time I tweet something, I mean, or, yeah. or, or sometimes when I say something publicly, you know, I don't know what's going to, I mean, the, the type of vigilance you have to maintain. Uh, it's not even a matter of censorship. It's, it's, you, you probably aren't going to say something you wouldn't say normally, yeah. but, uh, but it's very easy to be taken out of context. So have you got like ideas and jokes and little comment and thoughts that you, that you sort of dare not post anymore? Well, I just check the tone. I, you know, I, I, I make sure that it, it, it won't be misread. Uh. 
I try to be aware of that. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm not, you know, you know, my point of view is what it is. And I tend to like lately, I've gotten a little more uh, sort of educated about what is and isn't offensive and, and made new decisions around words that, that offend people and don't and, and have decided, you know, which ones are, you know, I agree with and which ones I don't. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but no, I'll, I'll generally just, you know, make sure that it's clear because, you know, what you're saying, it's a matter of clarity in the context of that, of that platform. Yeah. I mean, clarity helps, but I don't think clarity solves the problem. I think the the problem is that we've, we have created, I mean, the bullies have taken over the school and we've created this kind of world where it reminds me of the Stasi, you know, when, when they would ask Stasi, um, they asked. They got to start. The Stasi, the East German secret police, got a psychologist to try and work out why they were just getting so many willing informants. Like the Stasi pay was shit, and the workload was massive because more and more like human behaviours were getting redefined as like enemy activities right. in you know the Stasi's East Germany, and the, the psychologist worked out that basically. The reason why they got so many informants was because they asked them and they said yes, and it was like a why. And it was just this, they said, well, it's just the desire to make sure that your neighbour is doing the right thing. And when we look back on these times, like the Stasi or McCarthyism, it's like, we don't see those as the good guys. Yet, that's, that's the system that we're falling into. Right, but as you pointed out earlier, it's, it's not about that, it's to deflect it's to deflect the possibility of you becoming a suspect. Of it happening to us, like the beast is sated, like if someone else is being strong. Yeah, because somebody HIV positive should rape this bitch and then we'll find out if a skin colour protects her from AIDS. Nobody went for him that night because everybody was just so ferocious. No, but even worse her. than that, you know, you look at McCarthy, you look at Roy Cohn and what, you know, Roy Cohn turned out to be, you know, a closeted homosexual, you know, who, who had his own axe to grind and his own uh, self-hatred around that. Uh, and and that you know that overcompensating was a complete deflection from his own shame. So so it seems to me that you know Hitler's willing executioners or or the good Germans or these informers for for the Stasi, yeah, you know, were people that sort of like, well, if I get out ahead of this, yeah, then they're not going to find out this shit about me. Yeah. I mean, there may be some people within that group who thought they were you know perfect citizens, but still, you know, after a certain point, and everyone's biggest fear is that you know you you're going to be you know, corralled up with the rest of them that uh, even no matter how you behave, yeah. there's going to be a mistake or they're going to find that one thing. So why not get ahead of it and throw the other guy under the bus? Yeah, yeah. You know, when I was writing this book, um, I was talking to this guy and I told him one of these stories and he kind of shivered and he said, it's about the terror, isn't it? And I said, the terror of what? And he said, the terror of being found out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know when when the Justine Sacco story was my when my book was extracted in the New York Times and uh, most people were like oh you know felt very compassionate towards Justine and we're glad I wrote it but then a few people were like so what racist is John Ronson going to put his cape on for next and um, so I, I didn't the only thing I wrote because you're right like anything you say when you're in the eye of a shaming is like evidence for the prosecution so the only thing I wrote was by the way this isn't a standalone article. It's an extract from my book, so you've been publicly shamed. So then people were like, oh, now John Ronson's saying it's an extract from a book. Like, now? Yeah. It's a fucking extract from a book. <laughs> and then somebody said, I didn't reply at all to anybody else because I had to stay silent because you're right, it's profoundly undemocratic. So somebody wrote, why isn't John Ronson replying to any of us? And somebody else wrote, because John Ronson only replies to men. 
Well, see, that's the thing. It's like the, I think the important thing that you're you're saying here, and that is different than 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 what happened to to Justine, is that you know you are now you know in this other position. But but the important thing is somebody said the one thing we all forget it's one fucking asshole. But, you know, and then maybe four other assholes get on board. Like, by the time they were coming at you, it was not a million people. No. It was to- completely countable. Yeah. And, and if you were to really do the research, probably, you know, five of them are the same fucking person over and over again. Yeah. And that, but see, the, the, the mysterious sort of notion of the internet is that when you're sensitive and when you're involved in this, if two people say shitty things, the, the, the internet's saying it. Yeah. But you're not just team. You know, and, and those people are going to hang that on you. But because I was wondering about this recently, is there were a lot of people that were, you know, busting my balls early on when I got a TV show or when the podcast was starting off, just sort of like, you're, you're, you're not going to last. You know, you just like Louie, you're ripping off Louie or whatever their fucking criticism was. They didn't like me. So they were going to hit all my insecurities. Like, you're not that funny. Your podcast sucks. Not going to last. It's like, I'd like to hear from them now. I would like them, I would like an opportunity to say, I would, you know, if I was more obsessive and more crazy, I would go to back on my, through my tweets from five years ago and find those three or four fuckheads and go like, I think you were wrong. I just wanted to retweet this, yeah. you know, five years later and, and just to show you, but you know what you open yourself up to is like, you still suck. Yeah, yeah. but it's true. So you're right. I mean, both of me and with you, you're t- it's like a small handful of people, but it still snaked its way into us and it still like, had an impact. I'm completely, I think it's destroying my brain john i think that twitter is uh the that that whatever it's opening up to whatever is opening up in the mind whatever because it does have the same compulsive feeling as as an addiction and i'm an addictive person so i know the feeling so when you're locked in like that and you're going you're experiencing this rush of dopamine you know from both negative things and positive things there's a speedball effect but you feel it in your heart you feel your your gut sink mm. you feel your brain race anxiety oh yeah everything yeah. you know and, and sometimes elation but usually you're you're kind of moving through the elation you're sort of like yes that is a good book yes i i am oh thank you that's very nice you say oh i'm glad you liked it you suck and then boom your gut drops yeah. so now you got a bottom end to this elation you were just feeling from five other tweets and then you want to go at that guy to feel the 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 excitement of kicking someone's ass and then if you and then if he comes at, back at you and, and one ups you then you're in a thing that's making you're going to strangle yourself so the drama that you can experience inside yourself from just sitting with that platform that media platform is uh is a little annihilating and i i have a concern over what it's doing to my brain in terms of of you know diminishing my ability to process uh, uh emotional interaction well the other day i was um giving a talk in england and a woman came up to me in the signing queue and said she was a child therapist and she said pretty much every child who comes to her now damaged is damaged as a result of something that happened on social media so what do you mean child how old oh like like children teenagers like you know it's social media that is kind of damaging yeah the children now because you again because as an adult it's the same idea that you know before you can really sit there and practically say this is nine people it's the internet yeah yeah exactly so for us it was nine people and it still snaked its way into us. Right. And so made us anxious. So the people in my book, it was like tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, it's like it's so profoundly agonizing to be at the end of that. And yet, if you ask us, 
like because the snowflake doesn't need to feel responsible for the avalanche you ask us we say i'm sure she's fine or are oh, the sociopath so we 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 dehumanize them all of this is to make us feel better about our fear that we've just destroyed somebody so we either just assume they're fine or we give them a dehumanizing word uh, because it's easier to to destroy somebody who's not quite human so does it does it at least end with some laughs the book oh the book's full of laughs mark <laughs> I go to porn shoots. Um, okay. I went to a porn shoot in LA, pretty close to where you're living now. Oh, yeah? Way. Yeah, because I wanted to meet people who, who had, you know, found a way to eradicate shame. So I went to like a shame eradication workshop. I read a little of that. Yeah, that did, was did, funny. My friend, can I tell you this story? Sure. So we can end on a laugh, yeah. maybe. I, wait, maybe wait, the porn know. shoot, this was your concept of where shame is eradicated. Yeah. Well, actually, I met a porn guy um, who said to me, like a gay porn star called Connor Habib, who said, you know, that, you know, if you want to learn about unashamedness, you should go into the porn world. He said, you should Google me if you want to know more about me. So mm -hmm. I Googled him and I just saw like loads of photographs of his anus. Yeah. And then he hooked me up with this porn shoot. So I went yeah. to this porn shoot. A gay porn shoot? Uh, no, it was S&M. It's called Public Disgrace. Okay. I feel really sorry. Sorry for, for, the, for the subscribers to Public Disgrace because somewhere in a Public Disgrace porn shoot, like a woman's getting her genitals electrocuted. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Uh, she's called Jodie Taylor. And then... Um, I'm, I'm sure she'll appreciate that you gave her a name credit. Right. Wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to let that slip by, John. <laughs> no, no, no. She's a, she's a very no, she's a proud porn yeah, person. Yeah, no, no. Um, so, so at home somewhere, yeah. there'll be people watching this, like who are getting off on her having her genitals electrocuted, yeah. and then suddenly, like just as it's about to climax, a kind of tweedy owl-like journalist <laughs> with a notepad peers into shot. Do so you? I, yeah, I do. I fucking do. <laughs> I want to have like a closer look. So, so, so I've, I'm ruining people's erotic ambience. Well, now they're going to know. They're probably pretty focused before. Yeah. Maybe you're just comic relief. Who's maybe, that fella? Maybe for some people. Well, this uh, it, I, you know, I've only read parts of it and I love it, but I love uh, all your books. So it's called you've, uh, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. John Ronson, thanks for coming. Mark, thank you for having me back. Always nice to see you. Smart guy, that John Ronson. Uh, I love talking to him. And he's a sweet guy, and he's a great guy. And we went into the house, and we sat, and we listened to Pink Floyd's metal uh, on my uh, stereo. And I believe it, it affected him deeply uh, because he had forgotten about that record. And, and from what I understand, he continued to listen to it for days on end after that. Pink Floyd metal. It's all there. They lay out the future on that record. All right, now, I got this opportunity to talk to Britt Daniel. And, uh, you know, I got an opportunity to sort of jam a bunch of spoon in my head. And they were a pretty beautiful band, pretty beautiful sound, been around a long time, were huge for a while. And we, you know, we had a nice chat, man. It, we, it, you know, it, it's, he's a Texan. And for, uh, for dudes who end up playing in spoon, might not be the easiest thing to grow up in Texas. Uh, so anyways, this is me and uh, Britt Daniel from Spoon. You come from Texas. All you're all from Texas. 100% Texan. No, we're not all from Texas, but we've all. But you are. Yeah. 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 Could, yeah. What part? Temple, Texas. I have no point of. I have so that's no. an hour north of Austin. Well, what what kind of? How many people in your family? Um. Well, my folks split up when I was eight, and uh, they had two kids before they split up, and then my dad got remarried, had two more kids. So I I kind of have four. Four siblings. But three from the original batch. Two, two from the original. Yeah, yeah there's three, three including the me, original batch. Right. And you're the oldest one? Yeah. 
Yeah? How the how your siblings doing? Mostly good. Yeah. Um one of them just had a baby and lives right around here. Oh really? Yeah. My my sister is it's just it blows my mind that it's that weird. she's the one that that had the kid. Oh really? Cause it, you, well, just because she's the youngest, you right? She still, I still think of her as my very much my kid sister. How old are you? Forty three. Oh, wait, oh, she's twenty five. Oh wow, that is kind of yeah. that is kind of young for this day and age. Yeah. At another time, that was right on the money. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, I think my my dad's happy to finally be a, a granddad. Yeah, do you get along with him? Yeah. Pretty good? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, that's the jip the of it all. You know, it's difficult, but like usually when they have a grandkid, then they turn into this person that you never knew before. Right. Where, where was that guy? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know this, what I mean? This sweetheart, where was he? Right, going? right. Yeah. What the hell? What, this, uh, how was I denied that guy? Yeah, I think it's easier to be a grandparent, huh? The affection sure. without the without the um, right the uh, discipline. Yeah, you, you know? can just go get a fix. Mm-hmm. You know, just get a little love fix and split. Yeah. What uh, what 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 was your dad's uh, business? He's a neurologist. My dad's a doctor too. Huh. He was a surgeon though. What kind of surgeon? Orthopedic. Oh, okay. Yeah, bone cutter. Yeah, the heavy duty stuff. Is, is he Power still doing tools. it? No, no, they they ran him out of the business. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> My dad's still doing it. Really? He's seventy. Seventy. There's something good about. Well, maybe maybe I can. Did you find yourself uh, uh, thinking you were ill a lot to get your dad's attention? <laughs> No. Did you do that? <laughs> yeah, I did do that. Yeah. I didn't realize it till later that's what was going on. What did I do for his attention? Well, he was out by eight, right? He was out out of Yeah, your... but well, he was out of the house, but and that was not easy, but um you know, I would go see him on weekends, every other weekend. I can't imagine that. That's a rough gig. Yeah, and he lived in Dallas, so that's like two and a half hours away. So it was a trek. It what'd was you... a trek. And would you take the bus? Sometimes the bus, but lots of times he would just come down and pick us all up on a Friday. And then drive back? And drive all the way back, yeah. And he just stayed there till Sunday? Yeah, he was good like that. Yeah? He, he I mean, he was dedicated. He did his part? I'll give him that. I mean, one, he did leave, but then... <laughs> um, but he was responsible. It wasn't yeah. like your dad left and it's like, we don't know where he is. Right, he, right, well, absolutely. He, yeah. He's in Dallas. I know exactly where he is. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. And what'd your mom do? She did public relations. Oh, she, yeah? She is retired, yeah. And she's, she's around too? Yeah. So you got your whole family? Yeah. Now, like, I don't know what uh, Temple's like, but, uh, you know, you- I'll I, tell you if you want to know. I do want to know. I Like, see, I have a weird thing with Texas. Like, I used to, like, I grew up in New Mexico, so I, we were neighbors, mm-hmm. state-wise. And I used to have this weird attitude. There was a, a sort of arrogance to Texans and sort of like, uh, felt like they thought it was their own country and everything. But as I've gotten older, I've gotten a little softer about it, and I appreciate it a little more. Why? What, what was the deal? Was there a specific thing that uh, New, um, well, New yeah, Mexicans I, didn't, didn't uh Well, like Southern New Mexico is like pretty Texan, really. Uh-huh. I mean, it looks the same, and there's a lot of ranches and stuff, and you know, there's people that do that kind of work. It was more, it was real, more focused around like we used to go skiing as a family, and Texans were always sort of like obnoxious and you know over prepared, oh, right, over right. over outfitted and couldn't ski and like they had a, this sort of like you know we're here and it's it's all ours you know they, there's an attitude to oh it. right right maybe they were were they were they wealthy texans sure yeah yeah my i have a really good friend who grew up in albuquerque and he told me that they used to play a song on the radio that was like texans uh what are they good for absolutely nothing like so I, there must be something to it yeah i talked to mike judge about it he felt the same way there yeah. was sort of like this weird uh he thing. didn't grow up in texas no, he grew up in uh, Albuquerque. 
Oh, he did? Yeah, okay. pretty much. I, I figured he would have been from Texas. No, he moved to Texas right. later right. for his uh, wife's job. He does it so well. Yeah, he do, he knows it. Yeah. And he knows it from both sides. He knows it as a, as an Albuquerquean mm-hmm. who resented them, and he knows it as a Texan. Right. Well, he's sort of a, he's, a, he's got a little shit kicker in him, kind of, yeah. yeah. But you seem, you, you seem like uh, not quite the Texan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, Tell I don't me about Temple. Temple was... Um, you know, I didn't mind it when I was growing up there. I just thought that was everything about it was normal. Um, I guess I did mind getting picked on. There were the, it was in Temple that uh, there were a big contingent of uh, cowboys and and metalheads, <laughs> and um, and I didn't really fit in with. I kind of got into the the metalheads scene right at the very end, but well, at least it was I finally got based. accepted. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, they it, it was. Very conservative, fairly yeah. reactionary. Yeah. What do you mean, like politically? Politically and just cult- culturally. I mean, me and my group of friends, you know, fancy ourselves sort of new wave. And if you looked at any degree new wave, you were going to get harassed, you know? So you were new wave. And what does that mean at that point? At what that point, well, it doesn't, it was hard to find out about new music, you know, um, or, or new wave music. It, it wasn't was coming of, in. Yeah, well, you were dependent on, you know, the books, the bookstore in the mall would get the NME, you know? Yeah. So we would read that, and, like, Spin Magazine was still, was great then. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 120 Minutes on MTV, and, the, you know, yeah. if we could find out about it on one of those things. But like, the record store, no. Uh, there was actually a pretty good record store. I remember they had, they had a lot of 4AD stuff. They had a lot of um, Cramps records. So new it, was biz- it was bizarre what, what they stocked there because there wasn't really a market for it. So that Cramps record, Smell of Female, sat there at the front of the stack for years, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I loved going by and looking at it because it just blew my mind, you know? Smell of Female. Did you get it? No, I didn't get it. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Because I, I had, you know... Who were your bands um, when you were in I high had, school? I uh, had Cure 7 Inches to buy, Cure 12 Inches. Oh, you're a Cure guy. Yeah. Yeah, they would harass us in the in the hallways, and they would, you know, they would call you queer bitch. That was a big one. Queer bitch. Queer bitch. Yeah. Wow. Not you ever heard that term? Never. Yeah. That's like a double whammy. And my friend Cody started appropriating the name himself. Himself. So like they would go, "Hey man, why do you dress like that?" And he'd say, "Cause I'm a queer bitch." And he would like lick his hand and say, "I got the AIDS." And they would they would kind of clear out. You know, he. I remember him specifically licking his hand and wiping it on some cowboy's truck, and he just flipped out. Where so, he thought he got the truck. I got the AIDS. <laughs> you and stay it, away. And it worked. <laughs> yeah, it totally worked. And the, that guy, otherwise, they'd be grabbing your crotch. You know, which is which is strange. Really? Yeah. The that, cowboys wouldn't. The metalheads wouldn't do that. Yeah. Well, uh, what was up with that? I don't know. Maybe yeah. they had unresolved issues there. Yeah. That was their. That was how they were going to handle. I remember the center for the uh, high school football team grabbing my friend's crotch and saying. Let me feel your pussy. What? Isn't that weird? That yeah, it's fucking weird. Yeah. Like, what was the cowboy business in Temple? What were they? It was just the the style, or was there actually uh, ranches? Was there a cattle business, or what? I don't know. I think they just um, they just dress like that. There might have been uh, some of them that that lived not in uh, the city proper and lived out on ranches. I don't know, but um, I think it mostly was just a, a cultural thing where yeah, country music was big, and so they would 
you know that's fucking menacing that's weird that's probably yeah. one of the weirder things and most a very disturbing thing both both it was the, disturbing yeah well the the fact that you know that the defense was you know i got aids mm -hmm. and some and, and a, a cowboy freaked out because he touched his truck that his truck was going to get aids yeah. but the idea that they were actually sexually harassing you yeah yeah that that doesn't quite add up does it, it? doesn't no and at the time i remember thinking this is terrifying, but oh. not but not really thinking about what that meant, you know. About uh, oh, the terror. Or? Not thinking about the fact that these are guys and and they're totally homophobic and they're and they're grabbing my friend's crotch, you know. Yeah, it just didn't it's, it didn't cross my mind till later, like what what was really going on there. Just yeah. it was just some unresolved shit. Yeah. Wow, and it was I, just scary as all. Yeah, I mean, did was there fights? Yeah, there were fights. You got beat up. Um, I didn't get beat up too much, but, uh, you could count on, you, I got out of a lot of fights. I got pushed, you know, I got pushed a lot. Oh, that weird you know? two hand. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'd be like, okay, see you later. The I don't jock, need to hang out at this party. Yeah. The jock shove. Yeah. The worst. Right. Oh, that's sad, man. Yeah. Fuck those guys. Yeah. You don't see those people as much anymore. I haven't been pushed in a long time. No. Yeah. Well, you know, you found your world. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to go into that world. Yeah. Was there ever a point where, uh, you know, you were touring with Spoon and you're like, what are those guys doing here? Like, I've talked to other bands, you know, especially ones who, uh, who have popular albums where there's that moment where you're like, this music's not for those guys. Right. Bros. Yeah. Uh, I'm, a, you know, I'm appreciative of anybody who comes to the show. Sure. Um, yeah, I guess that there, there was a time when, what around maybe Ga 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 when we <clears throat> had this song called The Underdog that was like in a bunch of movies and and got played quite a bit on the on the radio and yeah there were there were some uh dudes with baseball caps coming to our shows yeah that's all right right not they were they were very peaceful yeah it's all right you yeah. know we judge but i mean you, you know there's a difference between judging some guy because how he dresses and having a cowboy grab your friend's crotch right right well what were you doing in high school were you playing in a band were you art department guy were you a good student yeah i, I played in um i had a cover band Oh yeah, um, that was, and we started writing our own songs right at the end, and then we all split up and went to college. But oh, like senior year, yeah. What yeah. were you covering? Cure, yeah, the Cure. <laughs> um, all like Led Zeppelin, The Doors. Um, What's your favorite Zeppelin album? Uh, probably now it's probably one. I think back then it was three. Right. Yeah. Now it's one. Yeah. Because of the guitars. I don't know. Just uh, there's something about it that's just intense, yeah. intense and hardcore. Yeah, yeah, and dark. You know. Yeah. What when you started writing originals? What were they like? Were they like what you were writing now? Oh, they were terrible. It took me a while to get to to get good. That's why I'm always impressed with somebody like you know. I I knew I know Connor Oberst fairly well. And that guy. I just interviewed him. Oh, you did. When I first met him, he was I think 15, and by the time he was 17, he was writing songs like with lyrics that, you know, just blew my mind. Well, he's you know? sort of one of those guys that just see, has this weird knack for it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I went to see him with. Uh, with Prine, with John Prine, they did a double bill here. Right. And it was good, because I, like, I wasn't, like, I missed, I'm 51, so I kind of missed it. I missed, uh, I missed him. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like a lot of girls, there's a lot of 15-year-old girls and 14-year-old girls that loved him. Yeah. And that was, like, it seemed like a lot of his audience. But I went back and listened to a lot of stuff. He does write really great songs. Yeah, but it's interesting. Are, yeah, but it's interesting. Control. As a person, he's just a guy. He is a dude, and he's and people have this impression of him that he's um, maybe a depressed guy, but he's kind of the life of the party. Well, you read it, and you sort of like every time I talk to somebody who 
who's like known as this like like he got a lot of attention for the songs and then you think like you must be some sort of wizard what's mm. it where's the you know guide my life somehow what show me something inside of you and he's just sort of like i think he has a knack for it yeah you know so you got better at it i got a lot better were you a dylan fan <laughs> um I in around 2002 I start I went through my first serious phase. I mean I had a few records before then, but yeah, but that's when I really got obsessed. Yeah, read some books. Right. Usually I'm just a sound and sort of like soundscape and sort of emotion yeah. guy when it comes to music. But he's somebody that I can I can just listen to the lyrics and uh, and be entertained. And there, there's very few people like that. Connor is one of them. Bob so Dylan, maybe Elvis thing. Costello. Yeah. Like uh, Beyond Belief by Elvis Costello, yeah. Imperial Bedroom. Yeah, that's a great what one. What is that? Yeah. <laughs> Where'd that come from? Yeah. and But it's like, it's about phrase turning. Like, because I have a hard time paying attention to the words if they weren't, if they really aren't right up front. Yeah. And like, you know, I can lock in. But like, it's almost like Dylan's like a comedian. Like the way he tells, like, it's almost like, wow. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Right. Where do you get that one? He gets into character. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen him lately? Uh, it's been a few years. It's weird. He's just out there. Yeah. He's just going from town to town mumbling. Yeah. <laughs> well, he loves it. It seems like he's always on the road. and He must love it. Yeah. It's just a decision he made. This is how I'm going to go. Yeah. So when Spoon, what what would you think is the, the moment, like, what were you writing about at the beginning? Oh, at the beginning, I was uh, just anything that would distance me from, uh, <laughs> from revealing myself. Um Oh really? It was uh it was just a when we first started we just um we were trying to get gigs in bars on the weekend and uh and I'd been in a f couple of very unsuccessful bands in Austin yeah. and my I was like I want to play on the weekend. That's where people come So you out weren't see. in Temple at that time? No, yeah. this this by then we're in Austin. Yeah. Now did you go to Austin a lot in high school? Yeah, we would go down there to go see shows or go record shopping, yeah. What was it like cuz now like I have to assume that when you grew up in Texas and that, you know, we're talking what, 20 some odd years ago, mm. that it must've felt like your own place. Like it must've been like this groovy sort of like, you know, a salvation, but it must've felt uniquely Texan in that, you know, like it was your place. Right. Cause now Austin seems to be everyone's place. Like Austin is like Austin. Yeah. And it like, was it more intimate? Did you feel like it did it? Yeah, it was smaller for sure there was nothing downtown i remember i remember going down to liberty lunch which was like one of the only maybe the only venue downtown and yeah. just feeling like it was a ghost town down there yeah um and now it's you know completely insane downtown no, nobody good. lived down there nobody after 5 p.m on weekdays nobody was there and south by southwest was probably not even happening yet was it it was tiny yeah, right it had just started it must be. I can't imagine what that stuff was like then. That when it it actually. I mean, it's a pretty special place. I've been there a lot, but it must have been really special in some ways when you're in high school. Yeah. Well, it was. It was special to. Um, yeah, to be able to go down and and I felt like there were you know there were punk punks on the street and you know there was the Austin Chronicle you could pick up and the I don't know just just the whole thing felt like welcoming and uh, more. Um, I don't know, accepting of yeah whatever I felt like. You right, know? right, you fit in. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I I used to, when I worked there, I call it the hipster Alamo. Yeah. Like, you know, like, the, it's just, you guys, this is it. And we got to protect ourselves from the rest of the state. Yeah. Because I don't want, I mean, was there a lot of Bible belt, Bible thumping with, around when you grew up? Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, there's a, there's a Jesus disposition in Texas that is uniquely Texan. Mm-hmm. It's an aggressive Jesus position. Yeah, I went to a, a what they call a Bible church uh, every other weekend when I wasn't with my dad. Is that a born again? Catholic. It's uh, yeah, I guess it's born again. It's it's uh, it's non-denominational Protestant, so it's um, it's very politically conservative and uh, and heavy, you know. Heavy how? Well, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about about hell. Oh, really? Thing, yeah. yeah. This is a Bible. It's called the Bible Church. Bible Church, yeah, huh. and that, that's and, a thing. And yeah. this is your mom's thing, yeah. And did, was she always in it? Um, she was. Well, I guess we went to Methodist Church for a while, and then she did that, and then she kind of that that was the one that she uh, that she landed on, it. yeah. And was it a new thing at the time? It was a new church, and it started out in like an office building, um, uh-huh. you know, uh, where they were renting out the room, and then it's, it grew to be a a big thing almost like a super church it is know? now yeah it's still there it's well yeah it's still there yeah does your mom still go a few times yeah yeah she does yeah every sunday i don't know about every sunday they my stepdad likes uh they, i don't know they probably don't want me talking about this but they <laughs> they they go to a couple di- different churches oh yeah so, yeah well it's like it's interesting to me like despite whatever i may think about or whatever you know uh kind of prejudice i may have about about uh about that that type of Christian, it's just sort of like there is a community to it, and and people seem to you know kind of it doesn't hurt most people's lives necessarily, right. does it? I don't think it hurts her life. Yeah, um, but when you were there as a kid, you you could feel like you're like well, I don't know, man. A little bit. I wasn't really sure what was going on. <laughs> was there like one kind of charismatic leader guy? Yeah, the very charismatic guy. Yeah, is one guy the the preacher? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and he he's. He still is. Really? He's still very, very charismatic. Does he have a TV show? No, no. But he's still around. He's still around, yeah. And it was a lot of talk of hell. Yeah, there was a bit of that, yeah. Yeah. So your dad was Catholic. Mm -hmm. So you went for sort of the hot-rotted Christianity and then back into the old school. Yeah, it was, yeah, so I was doing, I was getting, you know... (laughs) <laughs> getting it from both sides exactly right yeah, yeah. old Every jesus and new jesus right <laughs> <laughs> yeah and yeah. Did, did you believe um yeah i believed um but it was just um uh, it was hard for me to relate to those people you know right because they were were they judgmental of you as well i don't think that they were particularly judgmental of me it was um you know maybe it was just that i was a kid and i was being rebellious i don't know yeah but um but it didn't fit in there either. No, not really. All right. So the big dream was to get to Austin. So now you're in Austin, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and now you just want to, just want to play. Yeah. And you you thought you, you you're sticking with mostly covers initially. No. Well, once we got once I moved to Austin, yeah. I, my bands were, were we play originals. Yeah. What were the bands? There was one called Skellington. Yeah. There was one called the Alien Beats. Yeah. And uh, and then started Spoon. Yeah. But you're never like a punk guy. It was always kind of new wave and kind of. A little... I liked some punk. I think I fancied myself punk when when we started Spoon. Yeah. Yeah. But oh, um, that that late? Not not as a kid though. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, no, I wasn't really. Yeah, and as a kid, no, I was more yeah. new wave. Yeah. Like, because that's kind of like it's. Uh, I don't even know how to describe it because like I was not a Cure guy because I sort of missed it just because of my age, but I get it. Because I mean, because when I listen to that music, it's very defined. And I can hear it in your music too. But there's, I don't know, it, it, it's not ethereal is not the word I want. But there's something 
kind of like heart heavy about it all, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There's a. It, it's not. It's not even melodramatic. It's almost like, um, you, you know, it, it. It. It definitely is an environment. Right. Right. It's got some melancholy to it. Melancholy. Yeah. That's it. Yay. Yeah. Is that what you're thinking? That is what I'm thinking. <laughs> all right. So. You and st- I think yeah, we've got a bit of that sometimes. Well, yeah. Often. I mean, it's. it's it comes that, natural to me for some reason. You're a heavy-hearted guy. I don't know, maybe. What do you mean, maybe? <laughs> we can't, can't identify that. Hmm. Okay, yes, I am. <laughs> I'm not pressing you. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's nice, though, because I think that, like, when you have that, I have it, too, but I can't really live in it. But I can live in it when I, like, listen to your songs. Right. I can live in it when I listen to music. But What, what happens when you live in it? Um... Well, there's like, I don't know if it's a a longing thing, you know, like where you, you, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, where you just sort of like, is this really, is this it, you know? And and that's just like, that's not where you want to live your life. Well, no, I mean, it's there. I mean, it's always there, you, you know, but like sometimes then you got to ask yourself like where I'm at now, it's sort of like, all right, I feel that, but like I should be pretty good. Things are okay. Right. And and yet there's this there's this like weird kind of like primal yearning for like I don't know if it's relief like I imagine like when I get on stage and do stand up or something and you connect I mean you can feel the relief and 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 in that moment you know life makes sense and and it's fulfilling but like when you're just sitting there like you know writing because I do writing that's not comedic and I imagine when you're sitting up there you know writing like this last album. You know, there's that moment where you're the tone. Like I imagine, the reason why you can't identify a theme until after it's done is because you're just writing what you're feeling, mm-hmm. and you're and and that becomes this kind of amazing equation. So you make choices about what came out of you, and and something comes together, and you can feel it come together, and that's the joy of creation. But you know, it's it's not like I, I think that's how we resolve that feeling. Is that what you feel? Yeah, that that's one way that you can deal with it yeah 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 um but yeah i hear what you're saying like what why why should we live in that place when there's so many great things but yeah i think that the writing being lonely and writing uh can be it can kind of bring that out yeah yeah but sometimes i'm like i'm i'm lonely with people <laughs> <laughs> yeah i have that problem less but well it sounds know. like when you grew up it was probably you know it was probably real i mean because you're surrounded by these you know metal monsters and cowboy hats yeah and you just had we had to... some fr- you know there were there were a good you know two dozen you know oh so you had a fighting spirit yeah you know we're it's us against them yeah and we're more we're more fun and when I, yeah the more that i found a few of them the, the, the happier i was you know yeah 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 and eventually i just like said oh, i kind of do like heavy metal and then the world became much easier you know you you went you, you're like you surrendered i didn't surrender as much as like i started to understand like okay led zeppelin is great and uh uh so was there that moment where you sort of like you connected with one of the metal guys and and like you know <laughs> he kind of pulled you over and i remember loaning a dollar to one of the metal guys that we always we would always be battling yeah and like waiting for school to open yeah We'd always be battling he had this bon jovi light blue blue jean jacket right and he wouldn't call it a bon jovi jacket would he i don't know i mean yeah i know what you mean it, no, it had a bon jovi like uh, thing on the back like that, a so they weren't that, they weren't that heavy metal yeah, and I remember they were just loaning, him, loaning him a dollar one time, just out of the blue, and then everything kind of t- everything changed. You know? Because you're just kids, yeah, you know. And then what? He turned you on to Led Zeppelin and shit. No, we never really became friends, but but uh, uh, you know, around the same time, 
um, yeah, I kind of broaden my horizons and, and yeah, being able to like relate to something that, that everybody else could, could get was it was into was that was a nice change you know like yeah. everybody loves led zeppelin right right it's know? a portal everybody in. loves acdc yeah yeah acdc yeah. how great are they they're the best that's the guitar sound man that's yeah. in you man they i still listen to the first five or six like up and i'm i'm good up through back and black yeah and then i kind of drift yeah me too but powerage that's that's like one of the best fucking albums in the world yeah i love that one see like that's like that makes sense now now like now i understand your guitar sound Cause okay. That, cause, well, because that's what I I hear is that fucking Gibson tone. There's a lot of crunch to what you like. There's, it's kind of you know, it's there. It's satisfying. Yeah. Well, thanks. So you liked ACDC. That now we're on a whole different level. Right. Now everything's. I really got into ACDC in the last five years, but like there, but there was a point, yeah, where everything. I didn't have to just be new wave anymore, and and the world opened up to me. That's hilarious. In the last five years, you really the ACDC kind of really hit you. Well, I was talking about high school. Yeah, but... Oh, yeah, high school. And, the, okay. and, and I got, you know... But I'm saying when I had like an obsessive period was yeah. the first time I had an obsessive period yeah, with yeah. ACDC was in the last five years. Did you years. go see him ever? I've never seen him. Uh, I saw him once when they were... I think they opened for Journey <laughs> on their first tour. Oh, wow. And I, the fucked up thing is I was there to see Journey. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so what record were they touring then? Well, Bond was alive. Oh, right. And, you know, it was probably... Like Highway to Hell or... No, it was before that. I think it was before that. It was probably 77. I don't know when he died, but I know that at the time, you know, a whole lot of Rosie, the live version, had sort of like taken hold. But what about, what? What uh, did you have a um, girlfriend in high school? Uh, Yeah, I had one. Yeah? Yeah. And yeah. that didn't end so well. It didn't? Yeah. yeah. Heartbreaker? Yeah, she was two years older than me and went off to college um, yeah. before me and kind of it was brutal yeah it's horrible it was brutal well it was particularly brutal i just she didn't she just stopped speaking like i would never break up with someone that way we're just i'm gone and goodbye and there's no explanation you know i don't know if there's another way to do it yeah okay well that's that's not it, it, well whatever happened then it was how old were you it was painful 16 and you were with her for a while we were together for like nine months which felt like you know, but you were in. It was the first one, and it was the first one that I really, really felt. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it took the hit, huh? Yeah. Did you ever get in, back in touch with her? Well, I, I saw her. Yeah, eventually she, like, once I was in college, she would she came to Austin, and so I did. She became friends with my best friend, and I think she probably really you know, there. Yeah. Oh, that that doesn't help. Yeah. How many years after? That's like five or six years after. Comes back into the world. Yeah. Just to uh, sleep with your best that. friend. Yeah, hey, I'm not s sure right, exactly right. that. Okay. All yeah. right. Well, you never, are you still best friends with that guy? Yeah. And you never asked him? Uh, Come on. We've, we've talked about it. Yeah. All right. All right. You guys are okay? We're very okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is he not in the band? No, no, no. He's just a dude? He's a dude. That you've known He's since high school or what? Yeah, right after high school. Really? Yeah, right when I moved. He's still your best friend? Yeah. That's impressive, man. Yeah. All right, so you're playing Zeppelin songs, then like Spoon is not playing Zeppelin songs. Spoon no. is its own thing. Yeah, we did now, originals, yeah. Wait, like, but the heartbreak, did that inform the music? Probably. I mean, I remember some of those very first early songs that I was trying to write were, you know, I was trying to convey heartbreak. Um, 
Is that where the melancholy started? Or maybe. Oh, have you, you? But is that the way you like when you and a, and a lady break break up? Then then it's just it's over. You don't talk anymore. That's no, no, no. Of, that I mean, it's just something I've learned that that might be the just peeling off the band aid is the easiest. Well, way. I you know because there's like. It, like I'm, I'm terrible at relationships. I, you know, I, I've been married twice. I have no kids, and like they're full of drama. And you know, I'm like, I'm, like I think like it's weird that like you know, you, so your folks broke up when you were eight, and like it sounds like they were okay though, parents wise. Mm. But it just seems like you know when you're younger, and unfortunately me now, like when I'm with somebody, it's like that's that's it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's all. That's all. That's all of it. And I can't like you know I I need to be intrinsically connected, you know in in, in all ways, right? And that you know, sounds intense. Yeah, <laughs> but but you know how can someone handle that? You know like you know like after a while they're like I'm exhausted. Mm-hmm. You know there's some of this shit you're gonna have to resolve. On right, your, right. You know, but I've gotten better with that. And I, this isn't about me, but I I just found that if you're really done. As heartbreaking as it is, and I still have heartache over, you know, a lot of stuff. My wife left me like that. Mm. Like, uh, just sort of like, done. But she had to talk to me for a little while just to, you know, take my money. <laughs> but we had no kids. Right. But I don't hear nothing from her, really. Yeah. And it, it just hurts because you, there's part of you that thinks like, well, we were so close. Why can't, you know, like, because because you're, you don't have, your feelings are unresolved. Yeah. So it's just going to be like weird. Yeah, like it's probably better for for both of you because like, what's it just going to be weird, right? Yeah, well, I, I'm close to a lot of my ex girlfriends, but um, but yeah, right when that in that phase where you're where you're in, I think there's got to be a couple years break or something, you know, at least. Wait a minute. What? I I think I know one of your ex girlfriends. Oh yeah, I think you do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Eleanor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, we dated for like five years. I just realized that. <clears throat> yeah, she's great, huh? She's great. And with the the whole time we were dating, well, till the very end, she was she was not doing music. Eleanor Friedberger right. is who we're talking about, and her solo records. You're on the same label now, uh, or no? You're not. We on were, yeah. yeah. There, the last solo record was great. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Now, uh, now I, I remembered that. I'm glad I remembered that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You were for five years. She wasn't, and she wasn't doing music. Until at the very end, she started Fiery Furnaces with her brother. Yeah. Oh, so that was so you guys were kids. Yeah, kind of. Well, yeah, she was nineteen. I was twenty-three when we started going out. Did that one hurt? Yeah, and that was a drawn-out one. Yeah. Well, that's a long time—five years. Yeah. Until she, she got her new next boyfriend, and then it, it really was we we had some time apart at that. At yeah. That point. Are you guys all right now? Or no? yeah, we're we're real fine. All right. So now we're dealing with Heartbreak Spoon. All right. So where'd you meet those guys? Jim, the drummer um, who's been in it the whole time with me, I met him in the, the band right before the Alien Beats. Yeah, and uh, that was sort of like a rockabilly. We wanted to be country kind of thing. It was like ah. a thing I wanted to do to just get get to just do for a while and get out of the um, new wave pop. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you did country. Yeah. Well, a friend, a guy that DJed after me at the at the uh, radio station just said one day, "Oh, I heard that Skellington broke up. Maybe we should start a country band." And I just said, "Okay, right. Yeah, I <laughs> I know a few country songs, but that doesn't. No, that's not going to happen." And then I call him up a week later and said, "Maybe that is what I should do. <laughs> just something that's like somebody else can be singing half the songs, and I don't have to, you know, because it was heartbreaking being in the band before. You know, we just couldn't get 
anything going, couldn't get any gigs. And I was playing with a, a bunch of guys who didn't really want to do music full time. Yeah. You know? And did you have any love for country? Yeah, I was really into Dwight Yoakam and like Hank Williams, but it was a thin, I didn't, it wasn't a deep appreciation. Right. You know? No, you didn't go George Jones? Didn't go Merle? Not then, yeah. No. no. Okay, George Jones, come on now, anything? Uh, no. I, I bet I know, I bet I, I think I have one of his records, but I can't remember. Just a um, voice, yeah. hell of a singer, hell of a singer. I'll put that in your head. Okay. Hell of a singer. And as he got older and weirder, it was still it held up, held up. Yeah. But like, but it was. Did you find that it was ironic, given what you grew up in, that you were doing country? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> like, it really was a. It felt like a vacation for me, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was. It was good. And then once once we did that for a year, then we split up, and then I started a new band. Mm -hmm. And Jim was in that one. And then we um, started this band that was basically, I don't know. I mean, it was very damaged by the Pixies and some Nirvana and damaged you mean yeah it, well it, influenced by too much <laughs> yeah uh uh yeah we we ripped them off quite a bit yeah i mean i think a lot of bands did but um yeah eventually we found our own thing and that became spoon uh -huh. why that name well it was um the name of a can you know that band can yeah they i love a, them yeah they, they have a great song called spoon and at that time it was like you know all these one word bands were were uh we're all the rage, like Blur and um, right. Oasis, and right? Like Ride, and uh, I wanted one of those. What was the journey of it? So you guys, uh, well, you... we we put out a couple records that were that were pretty ignored. What um, what label was that? First one was on Matador. That was a hot label. Yeah, I remember those guys. They're well, they're yeah, they're still doing great stuff. And uh, then Electra was the second one, and we were dropped. But that's um, a big deal. Yeah. So was... you did a Matador record. Yeah, they still well. They're in beggars. They're in beggars yeah. group now. Yeah, yeah, but they still do a lot of good stuff. I get records from them. So you you do a big label deal it was like a big deal, right? Yeah, it was a big deal. Yeah, and it was it was hard to leave Matador, but it just like we had sold I think fifteen hundred copies of that record the in the first year that it came out, and yeah. so everybody, even Matador, was like, "Yeah, sorry, this was <laughs> this didn't go so well." Um, so yeah, we put out a record on Electra, and that did not so well either and we got dropped and so so that must have been horrible yeah yeah but it but in that like we had this anr guy who you know brought us over there from from um from matador and he basically once we signed the deal with him i mean he had been you know on us and so dedicated to signing the band and very you know yeah. all over us right you know um, trying to show us, <laughs> you know, uh, how serious he was about the band. And then once we signed, then he, you know, he didn't come to a single show. I couldn't get him on the phone and then he quit and we got dropped the week after he quit. And so we wrote these songs, um, with th sort of loosely about him. He, his name was Lafitte, Ron Lafitte. And so we had a song called the agony of Lafitte. And we had a song <laughs> called Lafitte, don't fail me now. And this, this single that we put out was kind of the first thing that like gave, the press or whatever anybody a reason to sort of latch on like there was a story all of a sudden right you know? right and, and that was, kind was of the first thing that and that the, was on a series of sneaks it, it ended up as it being like a bonus track on series of sneaks uh -huh. later yeah and so there was like some uh, good good press behind it like it had a little yeah for edge the first time it. yeah for the first time some people started taking notice and then the next time we put out a record um 
it's starting things started happening you know were you like when you um was there a point where you got dropped from a lecture where you're like fuck we're yes. fucked yes how long did that go for sure <laughs> a long time um and i don't really know why we kept going you know other than the fact that i i was writing songs and i was really turned on by um new kinds of music and uh that i wasn't so i just kept writing songs i mean it was really um wasn't very planned out but since i had songs and i had a band so i was like oh maybe we should play this song but you felt like quitting i thought that it i thought that i was probably not going to be able to put out a record other than putting it out myself yeah for for a long oh, so time like, ever you like square oneing in your head yeah, like yeah. you know now what yeah and then like how'd you get hooked up with mac um he had, come to, he had come to one of our shows yeah um when uh like when we were on matador i think actually and so i knew that he was you know at least vaguely a fan and so i got once we got that third record done i, I sent it over to him how was that record like like this was a like a sink or swim record in a way in your mind like i mean what did you do on that record where you're like if i'm gonna like i imagine you're sort of like well this is it my my attitude was like this is a kick i can't believe we're actually getting to put out a record yeah um i thought that it was over you know yeah and then somehow we got to put out a record and and then somehow it did you know 10 times better than anything we'd ever put out before. Well, it's, it's not, it seems like a pretty raw record somehow. I listened to it today, actually. Uh -huh. I listened to uh, Girls Can Tell today. Yeah. It seemed very personal, was it? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. It was the first time I wrote some fairly personal lyrics, vulnerable lyrics, and um, yeah, the whole thing started coming together. You were know? you aware of that when you were doing it? Like, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm... Uh, Yeah, I knew this is like, this is, yeah. This is me. It was new, it was new musically and also new lyrically, so... It just was totally new territory. And and I still don't know why we kept playing a spoon. You know, I could have, we could have started something else. We could have, it, it made, it probably would have made a lot more sense to like change no, you're names. You're saying no one would have noticed at that point. Um, if you would yeah, because no, yeah, we had zero success. Right. And we were, you know, when you get dropped by a major label, especially back then. Yeah. You know, we, we had left the indie and then we went and did the major label thing. Then we got dropped. And, you know, I remember just, you know, it just, it felt like seriously damaged goods, you know, right. like there's nothing that's ever going to happen with this band now. Right. Um, but yeah, we just kept doing it and, and do you know why things turned around? Why merge? Like maybe the, the audience for that label was different. Yeah, what? for sure. I think that they, they knew what they were doing. They definitely knew what they were doing more than Electra did. And with um, indie music anyway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. With, for, they knew what to do with us better right. than Electra did. Right. And, um, yeah, I think that the records changed and we had that store, you know, all this stuff. And we got better. You yeah. know, I, my songs started getting better. Yeah. And so everything just kind of started turning around. So but that must have been pretty gratifying to have put your, like, you know, real guts on the line for that album. And then it, it turned everything around. Yeah. It must have been reaffirming, like, okay. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And what was it? And then when did you just blow up completely? It was, well, gradually, we, the next record, Kill the Moonlight, did maybe, you know, three times better than that one, and then the next record, Gimme Fiction, did two or three times better than that one, and then Ga 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 did, did even better than that one. That so. was a big one. Yeah. That was like the... the it felt like in, in smaller steps, actually, which uh -huh. made me appreciate it well, more. You, you earned it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like you're being rewarded, you know, in, in the right kind of pace. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It was... 
It's a yeah, it was a unique trajectory. <laughs> and and you did so you did like what? You did five albums with Merge? Five. Yeah, you're right, five. And why uh why Loma Vista for the new one? Um well, we kind of just felt like it was time to if we were going to try something else that this was the record we should try something else on. Right. Um and uh, we still got our catalog with Merge and we just, you know, yeah, we're on good you're terms. good with them yeah they're they're fine yeah. yeah i think they just reissued a bunch of the records right or they never wear out of print they did, i got the vinyl on them yeah they did eventually they have reissued uh the two records that came before uh, before their time yeah and how'd you feel about going into this record it seems like it was the longest time in between records did yeah. this feel like a, a comeback record or in a what? way jack just simply because of how long we've been away i mean and that was because i went into divine fits yeah you know it's how'd that go for you it was good. Yeah. It was, it was a blast to be able to play in a band with different people and people who like were, you know, just have a totally different thing on stage. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. 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 And so how do you feel about Spoon now? <laughs> I feel good. I'm, I'm, I'm in it, <laughs> you know, I'm really into it. Yeah. 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 It's going, it's going well. It's fun. Yeah. You're having fun. It is fun. I love being on tour. Yeah. Actually. I like going away too. Yeah. Like if you stay in nice hotels, it's nice, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, often we got to sleep on the bus, but, but, you know. But it's a nice bus, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah. You'll be okay for a while. Yeah, I'll be all right. Oops, sorry. <laughs> That's your call. Telling you to end the interview. Well, it was great talking to you, man. Yeah, good to talk to you too. And I appreciate you coming. Thank you for having me. All right, that's it. That was uh, that was good. I got I got them going. That Britt Daniel, that band Spoon. So uh, that's the show. Go to wtfpod.com for all your WTF pod needs. Go to wtfpod.com slash calendar to check out the dates for the city near you. And also, happy birthday to John Montagna, who did our theme song. Other music on the show is by DJ Copley. So uh, I got the Telecaster out because I played some stones last night, as I told you. Happy telly.